All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 6. As we continue a brave foray into the heart of the epistle of Paul to the Romans, Sunday mornings we're going into the first few chapters where Paul defends the gospel, and we're now in the section in which he confirms the gospel. Philippians 1.7, Paul said he is appointed for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. We'll be hitting that a little bit in the near future. A few moments of silent preparation doesn't necessarily mean prayer, but can mean prayer. Father, we approach the throne of grace tonight with confidence, with assurance, but in need, for we desire your grace in time of this need, our time of need now, is to be able to comprehend that which is the one needful thing, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, therefore, to, by the Holy Spirit, not only grasp this wonderful gospel, but to be grasped by it, so that we can have a meaningful, purposeful life of ethical efficacy, eschatological assurance, and most of all, to participate in the fidelity and in the love of our Lord Jesus Christ into whom and into whose history we have been incorporated. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. This is part two. Last night was the first part of what's your story. And there's an acceptable ethics as we, and I want to reiterate some of the things from last night. There is an acceptable ethics for the redeemed of the Lord. One of the great themes that we have in Romans 6, especially I'd say 6, 1 to 8, 8, and then after 8, 8, he hits it again in 12 to 13, and then he has Romans chapter 12 to 16, that whole section has a lot of ethical exhortation and very important. In fact, let's do this. Romans can be divided up into Fairly distinct sections. We have Romans 1 to 4, in which Paul is basically taking on the teacher, the teacher that has the irreconcilable gospel with his. And that's why we have what I call, in my notes I do it this way, D, the delta, and then C. That means, to me, a dialectic of contradictories. Paul basically takes down the teacher's highest fortress and in this, this section. It's a dialectic of contradictories. Then there's Romans 5 through 8, which is a section that hangs together of its own. In 1-4, we might say that Paul is engaged in the defense of the gospel. In 5 through 8, we might say that he is engaged primarily in the confirmation of the gospel, which I call the gospel unchained. And we end up in Romans 8.35 to 39 with a tremendous sense of eschatological assurance. But we have in this section where we are now, we're making a foray into it. It's a section in which Paul speaks of the ethical efficacy of his gospel. He has a member, he is under the accusation and the slanderous accusation of the accuser of the brethren through the teacher and through some of the teacher's cohorts 
that the gospel that he proclaims of an unconditional soteriology and unconditional salvation is in fact backed by the slogan, let's go out and do evil so that good may come or let's continue in sin so that grace may abound. And so Paul actually shows that his gospel contains an ethical efficacy that the teacher's gospel does not have and that a false gospel does not have. We have then in Romans 5 through 8, we have a a closure in what is called eschatological assurance where we have who can separate us from the love of Christ or the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and then all the list of the 17 things that might try to do that and can't. Then there's Romans 9 to 11, in which, generally speaking, Paul addresses the very thorny problem of why has Israel rejected this gospel? Why has Israel, the very people of God, through whom God intends to show all the pagans his grace and mercy, how, what's the problem here? And, of course, that ends up, I think, in the climactic verse of 1132, God has shut up both Jew and Gentile into one single prison so that he might bust that prison wide open and free them all by his mercy. Mercy upon all, followed by a glorious eschatology. Then we have pretty much an ethical exhortation section, Romans 12 to 16. So if you want to study Romans on your own, there is a pretty good definitive four sections in the Epistle of Paul to the Romans. And we're really kind of working on this on Sundays, and we're working on this a little bit, making a couple of forays in this on the midweek services. And so the point being tonight, there is an acceptable and efficacious ethics for the redeemed of the Lord. Another thing we might call it is a pneumatological ethic. As our salvation is Christological, I told you we might get a little theological here, Christological soteriology. And that's where Jesus Christ is the very righteousness of God that is revealed by the gospel. And so we have a Christological soteriology, which is followed by a pneumatological ethic. Pneumatological has to do with the Holy Spirit from the word pneuma in the Greek, pneuma. And so pneumatological ethics, which is really a Christocentric pneumatological ethics. So Paul, again, in Romans 6.1, asks the question, what are we to say then? Look at it. What is, our, what is an appropriate slogan? Back in Romans 3.8, he had been slanderously accused of the message that he preached having the implication Let's go out and do evil that good may come. He words it slightly different here than he says in Romans 6. What shall we say then? What are we to say then? Which is kind of like saying, what is an appropriate slogan? Let's persist in sin. And Paul always uses, with only about four exceptions, sin in the singular. Because he determines that sin is a suprahuman power from which we need to be liberated. And it's an enslaving power. Only about four times does he use sins, plural, and all of those are pretty much in a creedal formula that's our, that was before he came around, a creedal formula that was in the church. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, it's been delivered to me, that is the gospel I received by tradition, 
is that begins with Christ died for our sins. But he's mainly concerned with sin as a suprahuman enslaving power. And so what shall we say? Let's persist in sin or let's continue assiduously, industriously even. Let's persist with great gusto in under the power of sin. Hamartia is the word. In order that grace would increase? Absolutely not. Meganito. 14 times he uses this emphatic negation in all of his epistles, 10 of them right in here in Romans, because he's presenting something and then saying absolutely not. Again, this fits in with the dialectic of contradictories, the two Gospels. They can't be reconciled together. What's happened in our time is that the two irreconcilable Gospels of the teacher and Paul have attempted to be reconciled by Christians and Christians have therefore tried to reconcile the two rather than see the extreme impossibility of reconciling the two. So we have a gospel that's not like the teachers, but it's not like Paul's either. It's kind of a, well, it's a justification by faith theory, which is something that we have to take a long time to demolish because the whole word dikaiosune theu, uh, it equals the deliverance of God. There are about eight paths to that, eight paths to that interpretation. And dikaiosune theu, which is the key phrase that opens Romans, is the righteousness of God. It's almost always translated either as the righteousness of God or the justice of God, but it's in fact because of the royal discourse of the king that comes throughout the Psalms and comes into Romans. It has to do with the deliverance of God. And that's what I think Douglas Campbell got right in his monster book, his monstrous-sized book, The Deliverance of God. The upshot of the whole book is that the righteousness of God equals the deliverance of God. It is an action of God. It is the act of God in Christ. But we could also say, as we brought up Sunday, that the righteousness of God is Christ himself. And Christ is the act of salvation. He is the Savior. He is the righteousness of God. He is the deliverance of God. He is the personification of divine deliverance. He is the action of the salvation. To see him is to see the Father, to see what the Father is like. And we'll have much more to say about that. John does too in John 14, 9. So there is an acceptable ethics. And Paul puts a lot of stress on it, an ethic for the redeemed of the Lord, for the company of people who are in Christ Jesus and are gripped by that knowledge. They not only know it, but they're gripped by it. This is where the second divine mission and the extension of the first divine mission comes in. Way back in John, in fact, I hit the ground running in John with John 3.17 to express the divine missions. John 3.17 For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that by him the world would be saved. That's God's mission. That's the mission of the son. And so we have that Christological soteriology. And, of course, then we have the mission of God the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 7 through 11, for example, John 14, 16 to 17, he will be with you. He will be in you forever. He will remind you of things 
that I have taught you, and he will lead you into all truth. Two divine missions. But the, sec- the divine mission one, the mission of the Son, and divine mission two really cohere together as two divine missions in history. These both stay together in history. And that's because in Galatians 4.4, 4, God, at the fullness of time, sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And he sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, dear Father. And that is, both of these then hang together. Divine Mission 1, the mission of the Son, in one sense was completed, but in another sense is extended into this age. This is the age of Messiah, yet to be climaxed in the day of the Lord, or the day of Christ, as it's called in Philippians 1, 6, 1, 10, 2, 16, and in variations in 2 Corinthians 1, 14 and 1 Corinthians 1, 8, but you knew all those, so... These two divine missions, the mission of the Spirit and the mission of the Son, are those missions in which we can participate, and that's where the center of ethical efficacy is. This is where the second divine mission and the extension of the first divine mission comes in. For just as God sent his Son, so he also sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The ongoing experience, and we can use that word, you don't have to be afraid of it, The ongoing experience of divine deliverance includes a divinely empowered ethics. There really isn't a sharp distinction between so-called justification and sanctification. In fact, that word justification is extremely misleading. Paul doesn't use it outside of Romans and Galatians where he's dealing with a misinterpretation of it. Only once in 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about now you are washed, now you are justified, which means delivered, and now you are sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so, or God the Holy Spirit, as it could be translated. So, justification and sanctification, so rigidly separated by the justification by faith theorists, doesn't really have that much of a separation in the Christian life. Our experience of divine deliverance includes a divinely empowered ethics, which we could call, if you want to, a Christian ethic. I'd prefer to call it a Christocentric ethic, a Christocentric ethic, which is not dependent on nomistic obedience or obedience or observance to the letter of the law, but one which we might call a walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit, Paul said, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you will enjoy the production of the fruit of the spirit by the spirit as you walk in dependence upon him. Not independent of, but in dependence on him. And what he does is he produces in you the fruit of the Spirit, which is the manifestation of the very life of Jesus in your mortal body. This walk in the Spirit is integrally related to participation in the fidelity and in the love of Christ. So I ask the question, what's your story? And the answer is forthcoming. What are we to say then, says Romans? To what? Well, he's gone back to Romans 5.20, where sin abounded in history, and sin abounded all the much more when law came in. The Torah came in through a side door, and by the law came the consciousness of sin, and by the law, sin 
increase. So how can we be justified by the works of the law if the law's function is to increase sin? That's one reasoning. But Paul says where sin abounded, that is, in the Adamic race, and where it increased even more in the side entrance of the law, God's grace abounded even more. Grace abounded much more. So that now grace reigns through the deliverance of God or righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ unto or resulting in the life of the coming age, the life of the ages, which we have in Christ. So what are we going to say to that? That where grace abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Let's persist in sin in order that grace would increase. The answer, meganoito, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What's your story? Is your story the history of the Adamic race in which there is an ongoing increase of sin requiring grace? Or is your story Christ's story, the story of the second Adam? And that is your story, if I may answer the question. Your story is his story. Your story is the story of Christ. When he died, he died to sin. And we're going to see how that happens in Romans 6, 7. And when he died to sin, you died to sin. That's your story. I was crucified with Christ. I was executed on a stake like Christ was. I was buried with him. I was raised with him. And Paul's gospel puts equal weight on his resurrection and enthronement as he does on his death as an atoning power. Not just his death, but his resurrection figures in the salvific work of Christ. The atoning work of Christ includes his resurrection, which is his enthronement and which involves his enthronement. So does the actual historical fact, and it's a fact, in history, God's grace superabounded when man's sinfulness abounded. Does that offer the rationale or the rationalization that now we are unconditionally rescued by this superabounding grace that we can assiduously, and this, the word here is persist with zeal in sin, Expecting God's grace to superabound in answer to our sinning. Paul says, of course not. Meganoito, absolutely not. Once again, it's used 10 times in Romans, 14 times in all his epistles. So it's a key negation in Romans. And this is one of them. He also uses one in 1 Corinthians 6.15. And then three times in Galatians, which is a shorter epistle, an epistle that was written before Romans, despite the order in the text of your Bibles. Galatians was written first. And so to say this, let's go out or let's persist in sin that this grace may increase. To say this is to actually undermine the very saving act of God in Christ and to become an enemy of the cross of Christ by which we were crucified, by which we died to sin. The actual historical fact, and this is important doctrine, I've written most of this out and I'll probably put it up sometime. The actual historical fact that God's grace superabounded when man's sinfulness abounded, mostly because of the entrance of the law. The actual historical fact that God's grace superabounded when man's sinfulness abounded contrasts with another fact, and that is 
that we have been incorporated into the history of Jesus Christ, who died to sin and was made alive again from the dead, freed from sin and its power to live to God. So later on, Paul says, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves, think about yourselves as dead to sin. Why? Because your story is his story. And you were incorporated into his history, crucified with him. You died to sin. And now consider yourself alive to God. For he was crucified in weakness, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 4. And yet he lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him. But we also live toward one another in the power of God, meaning the power of the Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts toward one another. So here's the question. What's your story? Is yours the story that reflects the history of the first man, Adam, and the Adamic race, the earthly man, Adam? Or is yours the history, we could say, of the first Adam and the human race in him? It's a story of increasing sinfulness, requiring the superabundance of grace. Or is your story the story of the second man, the one from heaven, who descended from heaven, lived a life of vicarious obedience to his father for you? And that rules out, incidentally, the false doctrine of subordinationism, that Jesus Christ is subordinate to the Father in terms of essence, rank, etc. That has nothing to do. That's a heresy. It started with Arius, the one who denied the divinity of Christ. So we're not talking about that kind of a, a second-rate God. We're talking about obedience to the Father, obedience to an equal to the extent of death by crucifixion. That obedience that his whole life demonstrated and that culminated in his death is an obedience that he exercised on behalf of you, in behalf of you. It's a vicarious obedience, as if you were obedient. And so that's part of the gift of God. So this is an anticipation here of what Paul is about in this passage. We were incorporated by the Spirit into the one who came from heaven, descended from heaven, lived a life of vicarious obedience to the extent of death, died, and in dying, died to sin. We'll see what that means as we go forward. He was buried, and he was raised again, where he is now alive to God forever. So the answer is, what's your story, is... Your story is Christ's story, not Adam's story. Your story is not the story of the earthly Adam. Yours is the story of the heavenly man, the man from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. You were incorporated into his history. So sin abounding so that grace may more abound is not your story. In fact, we could say in one sense that a person in Christ receives grace not to sin, not Grace because of sin, but grace not to sin. As John said in 1 John 2, 1, I'm writing these things unto you, little children, so that you will not sin. You'll not continue under sin's dominion. But if any man does sin, and it's inevitable, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the expiation 
Here's another shock to your system. Propitiation, which is a key term used for salvation, which we're going to get into maybe Sunday morning. Propitiation is not, repeat, not the satisfaction of divine wrath. It's not the assuaging of God's anger. It is the doing away with sin, the wages of which would be absolute death for us if it weren't for Jesus Christ. The cross is seen as an unshakably benevolent act of God in Christ for helpless man. So we're going to see the a whole view, a whole new view of the atonement in the light of God's limitless benevolence. Not, it's amazing to me when I think about all the way back at the beginning of Revelation, the question that I think the Spirit must have put in me is, is God's judgment retributive or is it transformative? That question is the very question that Paul's answering in Romans, that it is not retributive, but it's transformative. In fact, his judgments are salvific in every case. Even if it's a judgment on Egypt, even if it's a judgment in history, it's always salvific. It's a salvific act of God. Your story, then, is Christ's story. Your story is the same as the one who descended from heaven, lived a life of obedience, died, and in died, dying, died to sin, buried and raised again, alive to God. That's your story. So we don't go out, we don't go forward and continue deliberately sinning so that grace may abound. That's to repeat the Adamic history. The Adamic story, that's not my story now. The Adamic man is paleo man. He's called paleo man by Paul. Putting off the old man. Paleos, paleos, paleos man. Paleo man. The old man. Paleo man was crucified with Christ. So we put off paleo man. Our history isn't the history of the first Adam and of the Adamic race. Our history is the history of the second man from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit incorporates us into his downward trajectory, his death and his burial. And the Holy Spirit also incorporates us into his upward trajectory, resurrection and enthronement. And that's the basis, not only of salvation, but ethics. That's the basis for participation in him. And that reveals what faith really is. Faith is a gifted participation in Christ and faithfulness is Christ's and we get to share that faithfulness faithfulness is not a matter or faith is not a matter of appropriation of salvation but of assurance of it and it's a mark of the person in Christ so what's your story the answer your story is Christ's story so consider yourselves to be dead in to sin and alive to God why because he died to sin he's alive to God and that's your story so, meganoito, we don't go out and sin up a storm so that God can send more grace on us. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That's where Paul's going, and that's an anticipation of his argument here. He's dealing with ethics now rather than salvation per se, but he's also dealing in defense of his gospel and in the confirmation of his gospel that his gospel does not have 
an attack on real ethics. It establishes a real ethics, even as ethics in Christ is pneumatological. It's a matter of the spirit. It's not a letter of the law thing that leads to death, but it's a matter of spirit who breathes life into us. The spirit who was given to us and whom we received in Romans 5, 5, pours out the love of God throughout our hearts. That spirit-poured love is the basis for a Christocentric ethic. Love one another as I love you, as I have loved you. Only possible by the Spirit whom he sends. I will not leave you alone to try to love as I love. I'm going to send my Spirit. And he will pour out the love of God in your heart, as Paul said. So Christ and the Spirit... The person in Christ has the spirit who is continually delivering the the Christian from the enslavement of the Adamic ontology. How can we continue any longer in sin if the very spirit that indwells us now is constantly delivering us from the power of sin? Grace takes on another function here. It reigns, it rules through this deliverance. So, the person in Christ has the Spirit continually delivering her from the enslavement of the Adamic ontology, otherwise known as the old self, and we'll call him for our Roman series, Paleo Man. Not the Paleo Diet, the Paleo Man. And consistently producing in the dependent Christian, the Spirit does the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, which is also, incidentally, the ethical fulfillment of the command intent of Torah, because it all boils down to this. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your soul, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Something realized as we walk by means of the Spirit in Romans 8, 4. If we walk by means of the Spirit, the righteousness or the rectitude or uprightness that the law commands is fulfilled in us. That is by the Spirit who produces love, which is the fulfillment of that which Torah required, which we don't do by trying to obey Torah, but we do by depending on the Spirit. How can we who died to sin then live any longer therein? Romans 6.3, or are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated, he uses the word baptizo here on purpose, and it is a metaphor for incorporation, baptizo. And we do have, of course, the function of water baptism, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, baptizo. But it means to incorporate. This is a baptismal metaphor. He says, are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated into Messiah, Jesus, have been baptized into his death or incorporated into his death? When the Holy Spirit incorporated you into Christ, he incorporated you into his history, into his story. Your story is his story. 
His story involves a death, which is a death to sin, which broke the power of sin as an enslaving power. So we have been incorporated into the history, or we can call it the narrative or the story. We'll use that one primarily of Messiah. His history is our history. His story is our story. So I'll say it again to the answer to the question. What's your story? Your story emphatically is his story. So we've been incorporated by the spirit into the downward trajectory of the son. No man has ever ascended into heaven, but he who first descended from heaven, Jesus says in John three thirteen, to the stunned and shocked master teacher of Israel named Nicodemus. And I think Jesus is done speaking in 315 and John comes in with a midrash in 316 summarizing the matter. God loved the world so much, etc. So we have been incorporated in the downward trajectory here down from heaven. Christ is descending. He descended down from heaven. That includes his incarnation That includes his life of obedience to the extent of crucifixion. And therefore, we are part of that downward trajectory. And that goes down to a sepulcher or a tomb. The downward trajectory includes death and burial. So paleo man wasn't only crucified, but he was buried. But then we also share in the upward trajectory. It was suggested to me in the hallway where we have many revelatory conversations that this downward plus upward is V for victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 7, 25, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. So we were incorporated by the spirit in the downward trajectory of the son who was sent into the world to redeem it on a mission of redemption. As Paul occasionally uses the emphatic meganoito in Romans So he also uses this thing where he says, are you ignorant? Or many times he said, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. So let me fill you in. Paul's job as a teacher, as my job is as a teacher, is to augment the deficit of our knowledge. And Paul says this, are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated into Messiah Jesus have been baptized, baptizo is used twice, back to back, into his death. Again, this is not, and I think Lewis Berry Chafer even was right, one of the first guys I ever read, even though he was a dispensationalist. He said, there's no water in Romans 6. There's no water in Romans 6. It's a metaphor of incorporation into Christ's death. You're not baptized into Christ's death when some preacher dunks you in water and you come back up again. You say, when was I baptized into his death? Well, a long time ago. It's around A.D. 30. I think it's a day in April, but we'll see. So then, he also uses this disclosure formula. Lots of times in Romans he uses it. We'll we'll fan out in Romans here a little bit. It involves the use of the Greek verb agnoeo. Agnoeo. Are you agnostic about this? Agnoeo. Are you without knowledge? That's where we get the word agnostic. I don't know. 
What happened when you were incorporated into Christ? I don't know. So you're an agnostic. You are without that information, which is quite important for you. It's the gospel. Uh, I don't want you to be an agnostic, Paul says. So he uses the disclosure formula in which he fills them in on something. To agnoeo means to be ignorant or without knowledge. In Romans 11.25, for example, and we're going to get to this someday. Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, he said, how that a partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the pagans comes in. And then all Israel is saved. It's kind of like what Psalm 98 says, only in reverse. God acts to save Israel in the view of all the pagans so all the world can see it. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, 16 and 17. God acts righteously in a way of rescuing his people so that all the pagans can hear about it. Remember Rahab the whore? She had her own little whorehouse in Jericho. And she heard about the God of Israel who delivered Israel through the Red Sea. The pagans heard about it. So she understood enough to put that scarlet thread out of her window because she understood the redemptive blood of the lamb. She knew because God acted toward Israel so that the pagans would hear about it. But Paul's saying what's happened in history is that God now has to act among the pagans salvifically to wake up Israel again, provoke Israel to a kind of jealousy that we were supposed to be the ones that God acted on behalf of so the pagans could see. But now he's acting salvifically among the pagans through Paul's ministry. And that kind of flips the whole thing upside down. Yes, it does, because God had in mind all along to put both Jews and Gentiles into the same imprisonment maximum security prison called disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. God only has mercy toward one category of human beings, disobedient ones. Just as he justifies or delivers the ungodly who have nothing to recommend them, including faith alone to appropriate salvation. God is the deliverer of the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. So he says, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, how that a partial hardening has come to Israel until it's a partial hardening and it's a temporary one. And in verse 26, he goes into how all of Israel is saved. So Paul uses this word as a kind of anticipation of an argument of an argumentation of the ignorance of his hearers. Rather, he's putting this forward because he's intending to augment the ignorance of his hearers, the deficit in knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 10.1, he writes also, he doesn't want the Corinthian brothers, brothers and sisters, to be ignorant of the instructive relevance of what happened to Israel after the flesh in the wilderness, in the generation of the Exodus generation. There is much instruction for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come in that. So I don't want you to be ignorant about the lessons that can be learned from Torah which are pertinent to you. Romans 4 is one of those. Romans 4, the study of Abraham, is a proof that the Torah speaks of the fidelity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and therefore speaks in affirmation of Paul's gospel. He says this is the gospel of God that is affirmed by the prophets and by Torah. Romans 4, he takes the whole passage 
in Romans 4 to exegete from Genesis the story of Abraham to show that the Torah, which is Genesis, contains an affirmation of the gospel. There's a thin way of reading that, as if Abraham is the paradigm or example of justification by faith. That's a thin way of reading it. In other words, a superficial way of reading it. There's also a thick way of reading it that accentuates Christ, the greater Isaac, the one who was not spared, and the one who, by faithfulness, saves all human beings. And First Thessalonians uses that disclosure formula to fill in a deficit of eschatological knowledge. And that deficit of knowledge produced anxiety. More anxiety derives from ignorance than almost any other thing. That ignorance is the source of anxiety. And so Paul knew that they were anxious about their loved ones. That's eschatological anxiety. So he says, I want to fill you in on something. Here's a word from the Lord. We're not all going to sleep. Some are going to be raised from the dead, and they'll be raised. Your loved ones will be raised to be presented before God with Christ. Then we which are alive and remain in his parousia will be caught up. That means not caught up in the air to be taken away, but caught up in the air, as it were, to take on a new resurrective life, bodily resurrective life. And so he fills in their deficit of knowledge about eschatology to give them eschatological assurance about their loved ones when once their ignorance of eschatological truth made them anxious. How many people are anxious about their loved ones after they have died? Unfortunately, way too many. So the disclosure formula is often used, and he uses the word agnoeo here in a hortatory way or in an in a kind of a, well, a little bit of a rebuke. He says, are you unaware that as many as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized or incorporated into his death? Don't you know that your story is Christ's story? Are you ignorant of the fact that you have been incorporated into Christ and when you were, you became a sharer of his downward trajectory of death? And so... He goes further to explain this death also goes to burial, which is a kind of a finality for paleo man. Because in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, he says, Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into his death. He doesn't say we were buried with him through the water baptism. We were buried into we were Buried with him. His burial is an important part of the gospel message. This is the gospel that I received, which Paul said, I repass on to you that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that according to the scriptures he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. That he was buried as according to Romans or Psalm 16, where Hades could not hold him, etc. We'll be hitting that again on Sunday, some Sunday. So here we have the juncture of a Christological soteriology and a pneumatological ethic. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death. That is an act of God, not an act of man. The baptism into his death was an act of God, the Spirit, who is one of the three persons of the triune Godhead, the Spirit. 
spirated from God as the son was begotten of God of the same substance as the, as the father. You can't understand eternal things like the eternal begetting of Christ by trying to reconcile it with temporal ideas. It'll fry your brain. And there's a lot of people that attack that because they don't understand what the eternal begetting means. But that's something that we have to take up again in the future. Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into his death, incorporation into the downward trajectory, in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead, the upward trajectory by the glory of the Father, so we too, having been raised together with him, that means, I put that in brackets because it's the paraphrase of what he's saying here, we too, having been raised together with him, may walk, there's that walk metaphor, walk means ethics, it means to conduct your lives in a certain ethical way, that we may walk in newness of life. So Paul deploys here the walk metaphor, many times in his epistles, it's an ethical metaphor and means to conduct one's life in a certain manner. Romans 13, 13, he says this, let us walk with decency in 14 15 of Romans as well as Ephesians 5 2 walk in love in 1st Corinthians 3 3 he says that the Corinthian saints are walking which means living according to man they're still walking as if they're in the Adamic ontology as if their history is the history of the first man Adam they're still conducting their lives in that way which is what we call carnality They are still functional in the Adamic ontology, he says to them. So how can I teach you, he says, the mystery? How can I teach you things that are spiritually taught if you are still conducting your lives and your living, your livingness as in the Adamic ontology? That's 1 Corinthians 3.3. In Galatians 5.16, in one of the most pivotal verses in Paul's ethics, he has walk in the spirit. And there are many more examples. Therefore, to walk has to do with living or what Jürgen Moltmann called livingness, our livingness. With the the conducting of our lives with ethical implications. The basis of the Christian ethic, then, is incorporation into the history of Christ. It is incorporation into his story so that what's your story? Your story is his story. If we've been incorporated into his death, this kind of goes along with what you're getting, Ty. You know that, don't you? You mentioned recently. The basis of the Christian ethic, then, is incorporation into the history of Christ. If we have been incorporated into his death, downward trajectory of his history, And if his death was death to sin, and we're going to make sense of this in a moment, then we have also died to sin and should account ourselves, consider ourselves, think about ourselves to have died to sin and to have become alive to God, alive to God, aware of God, and even perceptive of what God's doing is part of this, perceptive of what God is doing right now. So if we've been incorporated into his death and we have, and if his death was a death to sin and it is, as we'll see in a moment, then we've also died to sin and should account ourselves to have died to sin and become alive to God. 
this anticipates where Paul's going. I don't know if I'll end it right here, this foray, and come back to it later. I may, I may do that and tackle some other things. But let's consider 6.5. For if we were united with him in a death like his, the if here is of a fulfilled condition. If we were united with him in a death like his, our story being his story, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, here's a tricky part of the exegesis here. This is why sometimes when I come to you on Thursday nights, it's after 17 or 18 hours of mental wrestling and warfare trying to derive the meaning of the text and fighting off old interpretations, fighting off traditional contractual construals. They come back very easily on us. And so sometimes I come to you in a total mental exhaustion. As, but I realize that's part of the package. Paul said, when I came to you, I came to you in weakness. And that's so the power of God can be perfected. Our incorporation into the downward trajectory of Christ also necessitates absolutely our incorporation into his upward trajectory. Resurrection, ascension, enthronement, which are equally atoning, incidentally, as his death, his passion and his death. Equally atoning for us is his resurrection as his death. Paul's gospel emphasizes resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The teacher's gospel de-emphasizes it, sidelines it, sidelines the cross altogether. Paul sidelines the law, as we've seen. Though the future tense is used in the phrase, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Though it's a future tense, it has a present sense. Because the, the future of being identified with his death is now. We were identified with his death, and so the future in which we're identified with his resurrection is the present. And so the, the future tense has a present sense. And you don't get that by reading Kenneth Wiest or A.T. Robertson or by reading etymologically the meaning of words. The worst thing you can do is think you're exegeting the scriptures by going to the Greek and looking up every Greek word in a concordance or in a lexicon. Because the usage is determined not by what you see etymologically or by studying the word in a lexicon. It comes through a lot more things, including the spirit giving you the sense and so the present or the future tense has a present sense in which we have been raised together with him. This is corroborated also in Colossians 3.1. We have been raised together with him. It's a present reality. Even though the bodily resurrection awaits a moment in time called the day of Christ. We have been raised with him. We can have an inaugural experience of liberation from enslavement to sin, from enslavement to anxiety, from enslavement to death and the fear of death. We can have an inaugural experience of it now. So though the future tense is used in the phrase, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, there's a decidedly present sense in which we've been raised, we have been raised together with him and thus liberated from certain suprahuman powers, especially sin as a power. So the present sense of the fu- it has a future, 
the present sense of the future tense becomes presently apparent. In Romans chapter 6, we're going to close these next two verses. So listen carefully. Stay with me just for a little bit longer. Just consider it an hour show like Blacklist or something that you pay attention to the whole thing, don't you? You pay attention to the whole thing except the commercials. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old man, Palaios, there he is, paleo man. We got to go on a diet from the paleo man. Palaios, Anthropos. There's another name given to Jesus Christ here. And I think it's a very important name. The one who died. It's this word right here. Apo, A-P-O, T-H, A, N, Omega O, N, accent here. Apothanon, apothanon. And it's without the article, so it indicates a one who died. And who is he? Who is the one who died? Is it the individual who died when he believed in Christ? Or is it Christ who died and included all mankind in his death to sin? Let's see. We have, we know, Paul says, his audience has heard Paul's gospel. They know Romans 5 through 8. He's just telling them there's going to be a teacher that's going to tell you stuff like I'm going to show you in 1 through 4. He's coming. You know. You know this in Romans 6, 6. We, Paul and his audience in Rome, we know that our old man, paleo man, the Adamic man, was crucified with him in order that the entire body of our sinful propensities, he uses a physiological or anatomical metaphor here as he shows Adamic ontology as being an entire bodily person with propensities towards sin with propensities toward lust, as he says in Galatians 5.17, the flesh, which is the Adamic ontology, desires against the spirit, but the spirit desires against the flesh. If that was just left alone, you'd have a Mexican standoff, as they call it. There would be a stalemate. But if you walk by the spirit, you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You overcome The Adamic ontology, only through the power of the Spirit. It's a divine action. God in you, both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. So he says, we know that our old man, we know with deep appreciation that our old man was crucified with him in order that the entire body of our sinful propensities, that's the way the Christian Jewish Bible put it, and so I've adopted their phrase. It means literally the body of sin, but they got it right by saying, He was crucified with him in order that the entire body of our sinful propensities may be rendered ineffective. We have an effective efficacy. We have an ethical efficacy because the flesh has been rendered ineffective through our co-crucifixion with Christ so that we may no longer serve sin as its slave. We're liberated. Now here it is, verse 7. For he who died. Who is that? I'll tell you who it is. It's answered directly by Paul in another passage, and I'll show you in a moment. For he who died, apothenon, has been freed. And the word freed is the right translation. The modern Greek Bible has the word eleutheria, which means freedom. And this is what Paul's saying. Even though the verb is dikaio, 
we're getting the sense that this doesn't mean justify. It means liberated, freed, delivered. That's the real sense of that word dikaio. So it says, for he who died has been freed from sin. Now, he who became sin, became sin for us, died and was freed from sin. The sin that he became so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the question is, and I started with a question, I'll end with one. Who is he who died? Who is the one who died? Apothenon. Who is he? Is it you? And did it happen when you believed in Christ? Or is it Christ who died to sin and in dying to sin included you? Who died to sin with him? Who is the one who died? I love when I get answers like this, and one out of a thousand times it comes this easy. Romans 8.34. Let's look at it for a moment. Once in a thousand. Every other time, it feels like you almost have to bleed out before the answer comes. And God is that way. He says, come on, son. This is basic. Yeah, basic training. A low, slow crawl over crushed glass and under barbed wire with machine gun bullets bouncing over your head. Because while you're doing this, you have all kinds of people that aren't even in the arena throwing stones into the arena at you because now you're preaching what? Everybody gets saved? That's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. I know you like the idea that a lot of people are going to go burn in a blast furnace for eternity. I'm sorry to break out your great pleasure. You stinking sadist. Now. So the question is, once in a while I rise up and bat away one of the bullets, but now the question is, who's the one that died? The answer to the question is found in Romans 8.34 where the scripture answers plainly. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who, Paul says, lays a charge against you? Christ Jesus is the one who died for you. Christ, what does it say? Christ Jesus is the one who who died. So who's the one who died in Romans 6, 7? The one who died is Christ Jesus. The whole thing goes back to Christ Jesus. It goes back to his fidelity. It goes back to his faithful death, his faithful resurrection. We are, if you want to use the word justified, we are justified by the death, burial, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us delivered. And so, Christ Jesus is the one who died. What's that word in the Greek, I wonder? Oh, the article this time. Ho? Apo? Thanon. Apothanon. Who is he who died? Christ Jesus. Messiah Jesus is the one who died. So you should consider yourselves to have died to sin, which is a pretty negative way of saying we should go out and sin. We... It kind of negates that, doesn't it? Why did we die to sin? Because he died to sin, and we were in him when he died to sin. That all answers the question of how he gives life to all human beings. The whole verse reads like this, then, just so that you're not confused. Let me augment. It says, who is the one who condemns? That's ho. I'll do the transliteration because I'm almost done. Much to your relief. Ho kata krinon. 
Who's the condemner? Who's the one who condemns? Certainly not Christ who died. And he goes on later to say, and certainly not God who saves, who delivers, who liberates, contrary to accusing. So he says, who? You're going to get the idea here that the one who condemns is the teacher who is obedient to one called the accuser of the brethren. He's the one that accuses. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Put Romans 6, 7 right next to Romans eight thirty four and tack it onto your mirror. Well, you can't tack it onto your mirror. You'll break the glass. Tape it on. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then he goes on to say, and more than that, Paul's always going beyond. He's been raised, resurrected. He is even at the right hand of God, enthroned, and we could say in a paraphrase, in a bracket, far from condemning us, he's actually interceding on our behalf. So who is the one who condemns? Who is ho karaklinon? I don't condemn you, Jesus said to the woman. I'm not the condemner. I'm the one who dies. The one who condemns must be the teacher whose face emerges from the shadows so that Paul can punch it back into the darkness. You know what I think, though? You know what I think might have happened? What's the point of a dialectic, if not the conversion of the one with the counterposition? What if Paul actually won the teacher over. Think about that one. I think he did. Maybe not right here, but sooner or later. So who is the one who condemns? Certainly not Christ who died for us and certainly not God, the father who delivers the ungodly in Romans four, five, the one who condemns must be the teacher. Or let's say this, the one for whom the teacher works as a messenger of Satan a thorn in my flesh, angel of light, Satan, whom John calls the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12. The one who condemns must be the teacher then, or the one for whom the teacher works. Even Satan, in Romans 16:20, under your feet, God will shatter the God of peace, the God who made reconciliation for you, will shatter under your feet Satan who accuses you shortly. So the one who condemns must be the teacher or better, the one for whom the teacher is working, even Satan whom God will shatter under the feet of the Roman saints soon and under our feet soon. Also, all of his devices will be defeated. Father, we look to you now and see at your right hand the one who died. The one who died, died to sin. We share his history. We too died to sin. So how can we any longer continue under its enslavement and under its enslaving power? We look and see at your right hand, Messiah Jesus, who died, who was also raised from the dead, 
who has ascended and enthroned, from which place he appeals for us all the time in a defense attorney metaphor. Help us, therefore, to mind the things above where Christ is seated and not things on the earth, which is the Adamic ontology. We ask this at the close of this message.